So there's a uh, <laughs> there's a segment in some sports show. I don't even know what it is, uh, but it's it's called Come On Man. Do you know what I'm talking about? Come on, man! And they just show like different <laughs> bloopers uh, and like kind of dumb plays that different players make. Uh, th- that's kind of the sense I get with First Corinthians. Uh, it's big. It's one big. Come on, man! Uh, come on, Corinthians! Don't you understand what's going on here? Um, they're they're way off on a lot of things. Um, but First Corinthians is notoriously hard to interpret. Uh, it's one of the hardest books. I think maybe the hardest book to really nail down what is what is Paul actually saying, and what does he mean, and what does that mean for us? Particularly that what does it mean for us part. Um, you know, there's things like head coverings and um, baptism. That's why we uh, baptize on behalf of the dead. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. Uh, but there are some, also some really good things in this book. And so I, I don't want to get bogged down today in a lot of complicated uh, hermeneutics or attempts to interpret the more difficult passages. Uh, we only have one week for this book. And so... Um, I want to talk about three things, uh, and they're the three things that make this book difficult to interpret, but I think they're the three things that also make it the most rewarding, one of the most rewarding books. Uh, number one is that it's, it's relational. It is emotionally charged on a personal level. Uh, Paul, Paul's very personal and emotional relationship with the church of at Corinth is clearly evident, and that will carry over into next week times 10 uh, in 2 Corinthians. That, that becomes the bulk of his uh, the content of, of, the, of 2 Corinthians, is defining his relationship with them and, and clarifying, no, here, here is what I am to you. you. You have these accusations, and it's just not true. Uh, the second thing is that it, it wastes no time plunging into some extremely complex and tangled cultural situations. Okay, so it's a deeply relational and personal book. It's complex cultural issues. Corinth was sort of a melting pot. It was a uh, harbor town or a uh, port town. So there's a lot of different people coming through. A lot of different pagan religions and uh, nationalities and everything. How do you be the church in the midst of that? And then on top of that, the third thing I really, really... St- pops out in this book is that Paul's uh, he issues some of his most poignant statements on the cross in this book the centrality of the cross okay so these are the three things that make this a difficult book and a deep book and a dense book but they're also I think the three things that we should take away from this book okay so let me give a little background and I'm going to come back to those uh, three things in Acts 18 uh, it tells the story of when Paul first arrives at Corinth. He spends a year and a half there. He meets Aquila and Priscilla in his time at Corinth. And they end up going with him on to uh, other things, eventually settling in Ephesus. He also, uh, Apollos was apparently there for a while. Um, and, the, and so the current situation, the book of 1 Corinthians, is Paul has been there. He spent a lot of time there a year and a half. He has gone on. He has since settled in Ephesus for a while. That becomes his center. So this is 
Toward the end of his second missionary journey, he goes to Corinth. On his third missionary journey, he settles in Ephesus somewhat. And it's from Ephesus, he's there for about three years, okay? Um, building the church there, teaching them, uh, getting in trouble with the uh, silversmiths of the goddess Diana, <laughs> all that stuff. Um, he writes from Ephesus to Corinth. And there are, there are some reports that have come to him. So the, the situation, there are two things. There, or, or actually, there's a, there's a few prompts for this particular letter. First is, uh, he has a report from Chloe's people, whoever that is. Uh, Chloe's people have sent a report of some division. That has, that it, there's, there's these divisions, these sects, these pockets of Apollos heads and Paul heads and Jesus heads and you know, these different f- kind of fans of different uh, styles of teaching. Uh, along with those reports, there's reports of, of some pretty uh, grievous immorality, sexual immorality, particularly incest, what the Old Testament would classify as incest. Um, so there's a report of division, sexual immorality. There's also a previous letter from Paul to the Corinthians, and that's in, in, verse, in chapter 510. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. So there was some misunderstanding from the Corinthians on this letter that Paul had sent them. Um, he said, no, I wasn't telling you to not even... Like, you'd have to go out of the world if you were to leave the presence of sexually immoral people in general. I'm talking about those people who claim to be brothers, yet continue in sexual sin, don't even eat with them. So he's clarifying some, some misperceptions they had about his prior letter. And then uh, he's also responding to a letter from chapter 7 onward. He is responding to a letter that they had sent him, asking different questions. And that, those are marked off when he says... Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. That's in chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's had these reports come to him. Division, sexual morality. Also, he needs to correct this misunderstanding of his previous letter. And he needs to respond to their letter that they had sent him. So we, we have been plopped down in the middle of an ongoing conversation. Okay? Which makes it difficult. Okay? Uh, but here's the basic outline. Here's kind of how the letter flows. Uh, chapters 1 through 4, they address the reports of division. Okay? And he, in typical Pauline fashion, doesn't just give simple answers. He goes all the way back to the core theology behind the answer. Right? Some big, big ideas here in chapters 1 through 4. But all in the name of addressing this report of division and unity, disunity. 5 and 6, he addresses the reports of immorality. Okay? So he addresses this instance of a man with his uh, mother-in-law, mother-in-law? No, his father's wife. Yeah, some uh, his stepmom maybe is what it is. Um, but then he also adds this chapter about uh, lawsuits among unbelievers, and it seems to kind of go from, go from nowhere, but it fits, and we'll, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit. Chapter seven through ten, he's responding to the Corinthians' letters. Now concerning this. Now concerning this. Now concerning this. Chapters 11 through 14, he's addressing their community life. And their, particularly their gatherings. Okay? And this probably hints back at the divisions that he's hearing about. And he says, now concerning what he says is spiritual gifts. But the, the context of all that is this sectarianism 
and division uh, that's in the, in the church. And also just disorder, chaos. There's a lot of different people. And the Spirit has fallen. And there's a lot of different manifestations of the Spirit happening. And he says, we, we need to not quench this. We need to figure out how this works together to build up the church. Uh, chapter 15 is a reminder of the gospel. Remember, he had spent a year and a half there. So he doesn't express the full gospel. He says, listen, I want to remind you of what I spent a year and a half taking you through. Okay? And then in 16, the final reminders and greetings. He mentions in there a a collection that he's taking up for the saints at Jerusalem. He reminds them to uh, stash some away every week so that when he comes, it's ready. Sort of like uh, in the McDonald's drive-thru when it says, have your payment method ready. You know, (laughs) get it ready so I don't have to go through this when I get there. Okay, so back to those three things, the, the relational side of this letter. Both Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church, also their relationship with each other. And really, it's the same thing. The same principles apply to his relationship with them and their relationship with each other. Uh, chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers. This is right after his, his initial greetings. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. What I mean, brothers, is that uh, each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that would be Peter. I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he's off and running. Okay? The goal, he says, of the community of God's people is agreement, no divisions, unity in mind and judgment. That's the goal. And everything he's writing is, is toward that goal. Okay? So just stop right there and, and think. The, the purpose of our life together is agreement, thinking through things the same way, having the same train of thought, bringing the same judgment toward things. Now, this doesn't mean clones, right? Uh, there's, he's going to address the diversity in the body in chapter 12, 13, and 14, that it's, it's a one body with many members, but we have the same head. And so we need, to, we need to think through things with the same head. Literally the same head, which is Jesus. And the same mind. Um, chapter 3, verse 1. Hi, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Implicit in this letter is the idea that the Corinthians viewed themselves as spiritual people. Probably because of the powerful manifestations of the Spirit. And he says, listen, I can't talk to you like spiritual people. You're people of the flesh, infants in Christ. Why? Because there's not the signs and what? No, there's plenty of that. While there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not, uh, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? 
For when one says, I follow Paul, and others, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? You're not spiritual. You're divided. The sign of maturity of a community of God is unity. And in that regard, you're not mature at all. You're little kids. You ever seen little kids try and... I mean, you can probably just peek around the corner. That's what Paul was seeing. I had that first... That's me. He's like, you're not spiritual. I can't talk to you like spiritual people. Because this foundation of unity is weak. It's crumbling. All right. Um, Chapter 6, then, makes sense. We talk about these lawsuits. (laughs) He says... Okay, you're going to law in human courts with each other. Clearly, babes in Christ. You're submitting your relationship to worldly systems of justice. What is this all about then? If we cannot resolve our conflicts in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we'll see later, it all, it all has to do with the cross. But if we can't resolve our conflicts in a godly way, we are not ready to be the people of God. And he says some interesting things. You're going to judge the world. You saints will judge the world. You didn't just get saved to go to heaven. God has, God has great stewardship to give to you. And he cannot... You cannot inherit the kingdom, right? That's just not the same as going to heaven. Okay, when, you need to pay attention when Paul says inherit the kingdom. That is a different thing entirely than going to heaven when you die. Inheriting the kingdom means you are the heir. And even now, even if you're not on the throne, I mean, just look at kind of the, the for show monarchy that we have in, in, in Britain, kind of the one lasting monarchy. With what reverence the sixth steps away from the throne are, are treated, right? You're the heir of the kingdom. You're set apart. You're going to inherit something. You're going to inherit judgment. You are going to become the judge of the world. Now, how are you going to judge the world if you're jockeying for position amongst each other and even going to court to prove your own point? You're not ready at all for the calling and the, 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 the glorious calling that God has for the people of God. Chapter 13, it's right in the middle of him talking about spiritual gifts. And it's all about what? Love. Listen, all of your spirituality is meant to build up the church, to make you into a people that can reflect the glory of God. And if you're conducting yourself in a way that highlights you and your gift and your particular set of skills, um, it's not building up the church. You're building yourself up. And it's dividing the church. And it's tearing down the work of God. And it's regressive. And it's infantile. Okay? Even, he says, if I, even if I'm a martyr, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it means nothing. That's unbelievable. I mean, we, we sort of 
idolize martyrdom. It's like the, that's the highest level of being a Christian. Well, if you don't have love, that was dumb. <laughs> you know? well, he says it's just it's meaningless without love. Um, so this, oh, I wanted to say one thing back in, in chapter 6. There, I, there's this book that I really like. Um, it's by a Jewish rabbi, and he's sort of a, uh, he's like a family counselor, uh, but he's, he has some pretty interesting ideas. But one of the things he says is that, um, you know, we don't see a, a lot of violence in the middle class unless we view violence happening in a different way. And he says what, what violence equals among the middle class is litigiousness. Just suing each other, taking each other to court. That that is an indication of, well, I don't, I don't want to dirty my hands with actual physical violence, so I'm just going to violently sue you. Right? It's the same heart. It comes from the same place. Uh, and so I think litigiousness, I think this is important for us, um, especially in, in America. You know, <laughs> talk about middle-class litigiousness is just on every corner. Right, you can see billboards like "divorce seventy dollars" or whatever. Um, it might as well be like a hitman billboard up there, because it's the same thing. It's doing violence to someone. That's what that's what um, this taking each other to court really is. It's, uh, you know, I don't want to dirty my hands, but man, I really want to do them harm. That's all it is. It's hatred. It's violence. It's the same thing. Okay, so that's, the, that's where he's pointing out their, their issues in relationship. Um, he also dives into these complex cultural issues. Uh, and so this is, this, this is the second thing. Um, and there's, there's two big ones here. Uh, we go to chapter 7. Oh, that's Romans 7. Yeah, chapter 7. He says, Now concerning the matters which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. So he goes on to talk about marriage, divorce, betrothal, and all this stuff that's happening. Should you get married? What if your uh, spouse is an unbeliever? What should you do then? And this whole area of marriage. And the important thing to realize here is not... (laughs) You will go crazy trying to apply this to your life. Okay? What I think we need to apply to our life is the way Paul approaches these issues. Okay? So, so here, here, it's not necessarily the conclusions he comes up with. Because he says himself, look in verse 35 of chapter 7. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Okay? So here's the point. In, the, in this complex cultural issue surrounding marriage and everything, he says, listen, what I am after is good order and undivided devotion to the Lord. And if you want to join me in thinking through these issues with the goal of good order and undivided devotion to the Lord, at whatever cost to me personally, then we can talk about this. But unless that is your goal... These are just going to be restraints and arbitrary rules. 
And he even, he struggles with this because sometimes he says, now this is from the Lord. Now this is just from me. And this is from the Lord. And this is I, not the Lord. This is the Lord, not, not I. <laughs> right? He's struggling through this stuff. It all boils down to good order and undivided devotion to the Lord. Um, start in verse 25 of chapter 7. Concerning the, the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Guys, if you want the opinion of an apostle who has laid it all down to see the kingdom established, this is what I'd say. Now, he's not saying, you must believe this if you want to be a serious Christian. He's saying... If you want to think through this, like I have, and in chapter 9 he's going to go on and say, I can get married if I want to. I've chosen not to because of the work at hand. In view of the present distress, he says you're going to have worldly troubles if you get married. That doesn't make marriage bad. It doesn't mean you shouldn't get married. It's just a statement of fact. You have more on your mind when you get married than if you're not married. <laughs> it's as clear as that. Right? That's not rocket science. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. This is verse 29. The appointed time has grown very short. So I think the thing we need to take away from this is Paul's attitude toward these questions. Do you want to go into these questions saying, all right, how can I live the best life? How can I be the most fulfilled in my life? You're going to come out with very different answers. If you want to go into the way Paul says, he says, listen, the time is short. This life is a blip. It's all passing away. The only thing that, that will last, that won't get burned up in the end, is this gold and silver work that we build on the foundation of Jesus. Now, what is that kind of work? Well, maybe you shouldn't get married. So you see how it's, it's the way that he, he approaches it. Okay? And it comes back to uh, some of the things we'll talk about next. Uh, but before... Uh, it, comes, it, come, it all comes down to the cross. Okay? There's, no, there's no hiding this. It all comes down to the cross. Um, but the second big cultural issue, and you've got to track it for, for several chapters, but it's food offered to idols. And he goes on a lot of classic Pauline digressions when he's talking about food offered to idols. But it starts in chapter 8. Now food concern, now concerning food offered to idols. So he, he explains a little bit about what idolatry is. Listen, there's no... An idol itself is just... It's a piece of wood. Okay? And an idol, this is important, an idol only has as much power as you, the worshiper, gives it. But he's saying, listen, these idols have been destroyed. So... Why would it matter if we ate food sacrificed to, to nobodies? But listen, there are some people who have given these idols power over them. And they need to avoid this food at all costs. Because to eat this food for them would be to fall back into that form of slavery that God has brought them out of. Behind all of this is the story of the Exodus. He mentions, have you noticed how many times he mentions Passover? 
Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified. And so he says, listen, here's, here's the big picture. God has defeated the powers that would enslave you. But just like, and this is why he goes on in chapter 10 to offer all these Old Testament examples of where people fall, it's because they give... They revert to giving power back to the idols that God has defeated and destroyed. And he says, listen, right after God destroyed them, what happened? They went and they fell in the wilderness. Why? Because they participated in idolatry. And it led to all this other stuff. So he says, and here's the bottom line for him. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So again, it's the way he's approaching it. If you want to have a theological discussion about the theology of idolatry and whether that affects the food that we eat, well, okay. But what do you really want? What are you really after? Are you after agreement? The same mind? Same judgment? Unity? then you're not going to be first talking about what you can do as your right. You're going to think first about what your exercise of rights might be doing to the people around you. That's going to be your primary concern. And then he, in chapter 9, he, he talks about that in his own life. He lists all of his rights, and he says, I've given all of it up, and I would never have anyone rob me of that claim, that I have given up rights. Now, why would he be boasting about giving up his rights? Because that is exactly the life of Jesus. That is the mind of Christ. Um, chapter 10, he, he goes through several Old Testament examples about how idolatry becomes a snare to people who have been delivered from that idolatry. After it, the power has been defeated. They revert to giving power back to the idol, which is the only way it can have authority over them. He says, listen, if you want to flirt around with idols, go ahead, but take heed. Because these people aren't any different than you, the people who died in the wilderness. After they had been brought through the Red Sea, they they went crashing down just like that. So, how much of an inroad do you want to give in your life to idols? It, can't, it doesn't have any power over you, but take heed, right? And here was their claim. All things are lawful. We have freedom in Christ. There's nothing wrong about this. He says, that's technically right. But, is that what you want to do? Is it, do you want to live your life defending your rights? Preserving your, pers- your independence? Or do you want to build the kingdom of God? Look at me. I, I want to build the kingdom of God. And look at how I think through these issues. Are you with me? He says, imitate me. Why? Because I imitate Christ. Verse 24, chapter 10. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's it. That's it. It, that, a child can answer, can, can understand that. 
So, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, I don't care what it is, do it all to the glory of God. Is that the way you approach questions of cultural norms, cultural morality? Do you first think about the people that you live with and then your own rights? Or is it you first and whatever people you can fit into your life around you? So, number three, the centrality of the cross. This has to be at the root of all of it. Back in chapter 1, this is how he starts off his whole discussion of unity. Christ did not send me to baptize, verse 17, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Wisdom, power. If you went through and you just looked at those two words in this next chapter and a half, you learn something profound. Wisdom, power, and their opposites, foolishness and weakness. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, signs being demonstrations of power. Greeks seek wisdom or knowledge or philosophical system, rationality. But we... Preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Messiah, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. I'm going to just keep reading some of this. Okay. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Who do you think you are? Later he says, what do you have that you didn't receive? Right? God chose what is low... God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being or flesh might boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written... But the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not coming, come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't convince you with words or a philosophical system or rationality. 
I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. There was nothing compelling about me in person. And this was actually, and we'll see in, in 2 Corinthians, this was actually one of their criticisms of Paul. You just, you're, you're weak. Who do you think you are? I mean, you talk a big game, but look at your life. You're kind of pitiful. And he says, yes. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. But if you're mature, we do impart wisdom. But it's not a wisdom of this age. It's not the way people think nowadays. It's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. This is incredible. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. When he's lifted up on the cross, the powers are defeated, and the, the victory is won, and the pattern for what brings the life of God into the world is established. And the new humanity is born with Jesus on the cross. In particular, with him on the cross into the ground and raised by the power of God. I right, see the cross is always coupled with the resurrection. So he starts out here talking about how the cross is foolishness. Chapter 15 is all about the resurrection. And so the whole book he's talking about, it's about laying down your life, laying down your rights. For what aim? Unity, glory. Unity in the church brings God glory. This is the image of God. This is who he is. This is the life he shares with Jesus. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. You can't understand this. You can't wrap your mind around this. But if you feel with the Holy Spirit, you understand what it means to live the life of Christ. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That's it. That's the key. To be the people you need to be in your relationships, to be the people you need to be in relationship with the culture around you, you need to demonstrate. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can have the mind of Christ, so that you don't think through all these issues preserving your rights. You don't think through all these issues how to appear wise and powerful to the world around us, or how to get pleasure in the most godly way, and how to ride that line between godly and ungodly, and get the most out of life while still being called a Christian. We have the mind of Christ, and it's. Different from all of that. 
And until you have the mind of Christ, you are an infant. You don't understand the way. You cannot be united in the same mind. Because you have a fleshly mind, you have a fleshly mind, you have a fleshly mind. And your divisions are evidence of this. But if you have the mind of Christ, that leads to unity and the glory of God. This is the law of love. The freedom we have in Christ, we use... We, we walk in freedom from our own passions and the powers that held us in bondage, and we also walk in perfect love with each other. We are free now to not please ourselves and to only please other people. That's freedom. So all things are lawful for you? Yeah. What's the greatest commandment? Have no idols. There is one God, only God, and love your neighbor as yourself. Then... The community of God is established. Yeah, you're free from the law. But what's the greater law? So you are free to live for others. You're free to glorify God. And we have died in Christ to the need to satisfy our own desires, to establish ourselves as something. We have died to that. So in chapter 15, he, does, he reminds them of the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection. And what he says basically is this. That if you're living the crucified and resurrected life, no, if you're living the crucified life, it, it is a pitiful life, if not for the resurrection. So guess what? In your community, as you're striving for unity, you're going to embrace weakness. You're going to embrace death to yourself. You're going to embrace abstinence in a lot of ways. Why? That's a pitiful life to live if Christ is not raised. But it's because in doing that, Christ comes forth from your life. And in no other way. You can't establish him by wisdom, knowledge. You can't establish him by spiritual power, great works, even martyrdom. The life of Jesus is manifest in your community. When you embrace the cross and allow Jesus to make something of your life that reflects him. And we are conformed into the image of Jesus. So, what, what do we want to take away? How are our relationships? Do we have agreement? Same judgment, same mind. Or in thinking through life and talking with each other, do we, do we ultimately want wisdom or power? Some kind of knowledge, some kind of strength? Or do we strive to make use of our freedom in every way that we can to build each other up and to come to agreement? Hey, if something in me is the uh, hindrance, the stumbling block to unity between us, let it die. I don't need it. Nothing is of greater value than our unity. How do we think through cultural issues? Our relationship with the treacherous idolatry around us. Yeah, we're free. But 
how the idolatry creeps in, right, in its, in its American ways, in, in entertainment and consumerism, materialism. How do we think through cultural issues? Where do we start? Do we start with what's okay? What can I get away with? What generally do other Christians that I see do? What, what are they doing? Or do we start with, a, a, first of all, a healthy fear of falling back into the snare of those things that held us in bondage? Right? That's not depriving you of freedom in Christ. That's saying, watch out. You don't want to go back there. And it's really easy for you to convince yourself that you do want to go back there. Case in point, the Israelites. How many days had passed since God parted the sea that they began to grumble? It was three days. Three days. One of the most greatest miracles the world has ever seen was followed in three days by the greatest act of idolatry the world has ever seen. Take heed. So fear these idols, but also don't make use of your rights. When there's an opportunity to surrender your rights for the sake of greater unity. Why would you exercise your cultural freedom to partake and to consume something if it's going to cause people problems around you? Do you fear idolatry and pursue unity and then think about yourself? Because pretty much if you think about those two things first, all your other questions are going to be answered. So Paul's saying, come on, man. Look at this. Look at this from the... Use the mind of Christ. Okay? And finally, do, do we seek to imitate Christ in, in embracing opportunities for, for us to make ourselves nothing? Embracing opportunities to, to go with Christ down into the ground. <laughs> to empty ourselves with Christ. Because Paul was saying, these opportunities come up, and I'm right there. Imitate me. As I'm imitating Christ. These opportunities to make myself weak so that you can be built up, I'm right on there. I love that. Oh, it stinks to my flesh. It looks like death. But man, it's bringing the life of God into the world. And that's all that we live for. So it starts and ends with having the mind of Christ. And this is what Paul is saying. How are you going to approach relationship, community life, cultural issues? How are you going to approach? It's all in the way that you approach. So I just want to remind you that the the two great passages on the mind of Christ are in Mark 8 and Philippians 2. And what is the mind of Christ? Mark 8 talks about where he says, I have to go to the cross. He tells his disciples, and Peter begins to rebuke him. And he says, get behind me, Satan, because you're setting your mind on the things of men and not on the things of God. You don't understand how it works in the kingdom. And in Philippians 2, he says, let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He made himself nothing. 
He took on the form of a servant being made in human likeness. And as a human, he, put, he, he became obedient to the point of death, even the worst possible kind of death, the sh- most shameful death on a cross. Therefore, God has, highly li- has lifted him up and given him the name of every name. So we have victory over the powers that hold us in bondage so that we can be conformed into the image of Jesus. So that now that life that God has always been looking for can be lived out in us. We are not free to please ourselves. We are not free to establish our own sect. We are free to look like the real man. Who lays his life down so that those around him can flourish. And we'll see next week in 2 Corinthians that Paul's pattern of life absolutely confirms this. He lived a life that embraced the cross. It got him accused, but it also, hello, I mean, most of the New Testament, (laughs) a lot of what we know about Jesus, a lot of what we know about building the church, came through at at the cost of great suffering. But did God exalt him? Absolutely. Did God raise him up? Has he been put to shame? No. Nor will we when we become imitators of Christ. Imitators of Paul as he imitated Christ. I love verse 16, 13. It says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong. Know who you are. Understand the, the weight of these decisions. Approach them in the right way. Don't be lax. Be watchful. Examine things. And don't waver from what you know Jesus is, who you know Jesus is. Stand firm in the faith. Don't turn away from the cross. Don't turn away from what you know the pattern of life that God has set before you is. Don't turn away from it. Be strong. Keep doing it. Um, so that's why I wanted to do communion at the end here. I think it should be pretty obvious. But we, here, here in the very book that we're studying, Paul says that as you do this, you're not doing this for your own benefit. You're doing this to proclaim as a community the Lord's death. The pattern of life. The life that we have now been given to. Death with Jesus, resurrection with him. Okay? And that is what unites us as a community. He says, don't get together for the Lord's Supper. Unless you really understand what you're doing. But if you understand what you're doing, oh man, what power there is. In this act that we do. Taking the body and the blood of Jesus. And proclaiming the Lord's death. Until he comes. Um, so Stephen you want to come up and just play a little something. Let's take a few minutes. And uh, reflect on this. Ask the spirit to search us. The two things that we always say are. You want to make sure that you don't have unrepented sin in your life. That there's nothing God has put his finger on. And said, you know that doesn't glorify me. And and we haven't said, oh yes, help me, deliver me. 
So unrepented sin and also disunity. Do we in some way want to know more than someone else and so place ourselves above them? Do we want to appear in a certain way to other people so that we can kind of know our status in relation to them? Or do we want to take all of our rights and lay them down? And anything that in, that in us, that in me, is a, is a stumbling block to someone else and being unified with me, I want to let that just die. I don't want to cling to that. Even if I have a right to, I don't want to cling to it. That's the life that God calls us to. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you that you've called us to this life and you've made it possible. And Lord, as we approach the table today, as we, as we partake of your body and your blood, uh, we pray that you would uh, fill us anew, fill us afresh uh, this day with um, a sense of uh, your purposes, a sense of the glory among us, even in our little church here. Lord, that you can get glory when we are unified and we get our hearts together and we get our minds together and allow you to place us together in a way that agrees that the way of life is the way of Jesus and seeks to live that life at whatever cost to our own freedom, our own preferences. Lord, help us. Take us there. We want to be imitators of you. Holy Spirit, search our hearts. And I pray that you would uh, help us to approach the table today in a worthy manner, uh, desperate for you, but fully given. Uh, to what this body and blood means. Your death for us, but also our death for others. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.